Good evening, church. It's great to be with all of you. Tonight's sermon comes from 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 16. And welcome visitors or first-time guests. And for anyone who uh, wants to read along in the text, you can turn to page 1179 in your pew Bible. We're continuing on in our sermon of 1 Timothy, looking at the letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, a younger pastor serving in Ephesus, a child in the faith, and Paul is writing him on how godly living must be rooted in the one true gospel rather than false teaching of that time. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says he has concern for the behavior of those who belong to the household of God. Paul is wanting the gospel of grace to encourage Timothy and the church. Last week, Pastor DT preached an excellent sermon on how a leader and a life is shaped by the gospel. In tonight's text, we'll be looking at how the gospel can shape an entire church community. With that being said, reading now, 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his, own, of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Please pray with me. Lord, we ask that your word would accomplish its purposes. Holy Spirit, we invite you to work in our hearts to lead us to change and to joy and to transformational worship. Would you give me strength to explain this text? And Lord, we look to you to help us apply it to our lives, that we might be a people who um, bring you much glory and honor in the way we live in light of the gospel. Make us more like your son. And Father, I just pray that uh, this sermon would bring glory to your name. Pray for all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
It's hard to believe that Erica and I's first child, Jameis, and our daughter this month will soon be turning three years old. Time goes by very quickly, and uh, later this month she'll be turning three. One of the joys of this age of two, soon to be three, is not only the stringing together of sentences and carrying a conversation, but Jameson has the ability to say things that can both melt a heart and remind us, like all kids do, that children are listening more than we give them credit. Uh, just the other night at dinner, Erica was doing one of these motions, hurt shoulder, hurt back, um, and Jameson said, what's wrong, mommy? Jameson, uh, Erica said, nothing, mommy's back just hurts a little bit. And Jameson, without missing a beat, says, it will be okay, mommy. Jesus will take care of you. Just completely melts the heart of a dad in that moment. Tonight's text, there's a lot of people, instructions, almost reads like policies of what to do or what not to do in regards to widows. And I want to make the main thing that you hear right now as simple as what Jameson, a two-year-old, had to say. Jesus will take care of you. That's what Paul is wanting to communicate to this young pastor, Timothy, that Jesus is on mission to take care of his people, that God's great love has not only reconciled us to himself, but through Jesus and his bloodshed, he's reconciled us to one another. And so when it comes to widows in the church, family members, Paul is writing this portion of the letter to tell Timothy, Christians take care of one another. Whether it's believers in their family or family of believers, we take care of each other. I have three points for us tonight for those of you who are taking notes. I'll say them all, but I'll, I'll be sure to repeat them. The first is that we cultivate our spiritual family. The second is that we come alongside our own family. And the third is that we care for needs as a church. Look at verse one and two for our first point. We cultivate our spiritual family. In verses one and two, we see all the roles of a household, men, women, older, younger, father, brothers, mothers, and sisters. And Paul has two warnings for young pastor Timothy. First is when it comes to relating to the older men, make sure you encourage rather than rebuke. This word rebuke is used throughout the New Testament, even I believe next uh, week's sermon uses the word rebuke, but this word rebuke is only used in the Greek translation in just 2 Timothy 5.1. It translates to strike at. Paul's giving Timothy some proverbial wisdom that when relating to older men in the church, don't strike at them verbally, but be a leader of encouragement. And when it comes to all believers, but especially the women of the church, the second warning is to relate to them with all purity. Paul wants Timothy to be careful. And even in today's age, we don't have to look far to see the scandals of inappropriate and impure relationships, even within the church. Now, a foundation of purity is important for more than just the pastor. It's a foundation for the entire church. And not only uh, is, um, not only is this important for all members to relate in purity, but also it's worth mentioning, this is not the first time that Paul has mentioned the church as a family. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul refers to the church as a household three times. He does so in a letter to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 2 and 3. He talks about the church's oneness 
And in Galatians 6, he calls the church the family of believers. Every morning service, part of our church liturgy is passing the peace. This isn't something we do informally in the hallways, though that is normal and welcomed, but part of our formal worship structure is passing the peace with those around us. This is because God has made us family. We cultivate a spiritual family as fellow children of God. We can function in all purity, as Paul has written, because of what Christ has done. The reason we sing, worthy is the lamb, is because God has not reconciled us just to himself, but to one another. This is incredible. Regardless of who is in your own house tonight, whether that is kids, no kids, siblings, no siblings, parents, no parents, if you are a member of God's house, then you have a family, a full family. In God's house, you are given the joy of possessing real spiritual parents, real spiritual siblings, and children. We see this even in chapter one when Paul introduces his letter by saying, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So how do we pursue cultivating a spiritual family? At First Pres, one of our values is developing authentic relationships. What are your relationships like in this spiritual family? If you were gone for an amount of time, who outside of your own family, but in this spiritual family would feel your absence? Is there someone that you can move uh, towards for deeper fellowship within this church, maybe through your parish or your Sunday school? Perhaps there's someone in this congregation, in this household, as Paul would call it, that you need to forgive for the sake of purity. I was gonna share more, but Dr. McCurd shared it in the announcements. I wanna encourage everyone to take part in the McKnight lectures these next three weeks. I have no doubt that those lectures will help us as we continue to cultivate our spiritual family. It's only a, a spiritual family that can care for others. In verses three through 16, the rest of the text, there is a heavy emphasis on widows. Before diving into verse, or to point two or three, I wanna make mention of why I believe Paul is writing so much on widows. Why so much emphasis to Timothy? In the Old Testament, there's a reference to widows over 50 times. The Bible from beginning to end commands that we help widows. Warns, God warns about forgetting or harming widows and mandates giving care to them. In Psalm 65, God gives himself the name, father of the fatherless and protector of widows. Four weeks ago, we heard a great sermon from Pastor Luke Nide about the office of deacon. And I believe that's important to bring back up because the diaconate is forever tied to that of widows. That's because the origin, everyone loves a good origin story, right? The origin of the diaconate comes from Acts chapter six. The church was growing so much in Jerusalem that the office of deacon was established because widows were being neglected. So it might seem like there's a great emphasis given, but this was written probably within 20 to 30 years of an office, ordained office in the church being created because Hellenistic widows were being neglected. 
Paul is warning Timothy and the church, do not neglect widows. Now, I believe that this text for us in 2023 applies to those who are dependent and more than just widows, but certainly not less with the priority being even today, that of widowed relatives. The next two points in this section of 1 Timothy 5, the question that Paul is raising is not if they will be cared for, but who will care for them, which leads us to point number two, coming alongside our own family. Paul lays out two benefits when care happens without the assistance of the church. Two benefits I wanna mention when care happens outside the assistance of the church, primarily through the family. First, it promotes godliness in the caregivers. Look at verse four. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, to make return, which pleases God. Caring, Paul is saying that caring for our relatives is the normative way care is to be extended. It is the normative way and it pleases God. Verse four teaches us that children and grandchildren have the privilege of returning care and dependency. That those who were once taking care of children, the children have the opportunity to honor their fathers and mothers and return that care. Also verse eight highlights a promotion of godliness in the caregivers. Two words, if anyone, that should make our ears perk up, if anyone. Paul is saying that all believers can live this out. And what are they living out? The faith. All believers through caring for relatives can promote godliness and live out the faith. And abandonment to not do so, it does not just stunt your faith, but Paul is suggesting that you have denied the faith. He actually takes it a step further. He doesn't just say that to not care for your relatives, especially your own household denies the faith, but verse eight ends with this very stern warning. It could make you worse than an unbeliever. One of my favorite movies is a remake of an old 50s Western. It's called 310 to Yuma. Maybe some of you have seen it. In 2007, there was a remake with Christian Bale and Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe plays my favorite character in the movie. It's a fascinating villain who's a murderous outlaw named Ben Wade. As you watch the film, Russell Crowe's character, great acting, he comes across as someone who doesn't care about anyone but himself. He robs trains, he steals, he's a thief. He doesn't, he doesn't treat anyone well. And as the movie goes along, he continues to murder one person after another. And yet halfway through the film, Ben Wade, this outlaw villain, a murderous man, he teaches us something about humanity with this line. Even bad men love their mama. Even bad men love their mama. I believe that is what Paul is saying in verse eight. And that's what all, all of the commentaries that I could read on our verse eight came to the same conclusion, that even if there are people we know who have not been born again spiritually, 
we have seen some conduct in their life that makes them care for family members. How much more should those who have been reconciled to God, how much more should the care for our household come with joy to those who know King Jesus? For those who know King Jesus, it is not a burden to care for our family. It is a privilege, it is an honor, and it promotes godliness within us. Listen to what 19th century Presbyterian minister Albert Barnes has to say on verse 8. We may hence learn that it is possible to deny the faith by conduct as well as by words, and that a neglect of doing our duty of care to family is as real a denial of Christianity as it would be to openly renounce it. As we come alongside our own family, we do so by the love of the cross. And it not only promotes godliness in the caregivers, but number two, it is protecting the recipients of the care. Now, coming alongside our own is uh, one way to put it, but another way would be recognizing in 1 Timothy 5 that there are some who have been receiving care who do not currently need it from their family or the church. Paul is writing for their protection as well. Look at verse six and seven. Paul is saying that those who are receiving unnecessary assistance, they could be led to luxurious living. And those who are self-indulgent are dead even while they live. Paul is saying that by refusing unnecessary care from the church, one can avoid destructive self-indulgence and can live above reproach to the watching world. A second portion of how this instruction from Paul protects the recipients of care is seen in verses 11 through 16. Paul writes a protective measure about younger widows remarrying. He says they should remarry and if able, have children rather than depend on others. So we learn that whether it's widow, for widows and for certain others who are dependent or could seem dependent, it is for their protection to not receive care from the church or their household, their relatives. Paul writes that widows who are able should live or work so that they will be protected against tempting sins listed in verses 11 through 13. Look at some of these sins. Verse 11, passions that draw them away from Christ. Verse 13, idlers, gossips, busybodies, saying what they should not. Paul is communicating that for some, it will be better for them to remarry, live, or work as younger people than to live lives where they're receiving care from a household or the household of God. Think of in the Old Testament, a great example of this would be that of Naomi and Ruth. Ruth the book of Ruth is an Old Testament story, four chapters long. And in the, in the first chapter, you read of Naomi, who her husband passes away, which makes her a widow. And she lives with her two sons and their wives for 10 years. So we see in chapter one of Ruth, for 10 years, she's receiving care from her household. And eventually, after 10 years, her sons die. 
And she has these daughters, daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. Ruth famous for sticking with Naomi and really living out this text, caring for Naomi, those famous words of where you go, I'll go. Even to the extent of where you're buried, I'll be buried. And in Ruth chapter four, as the, as the narrative comes to a close and we see Ruth caring for her household and her mother-in-law, not even one related by blood, but caring for her mother-in-law as a widow, it is said of Ruth that her help and her care and her friendship was better than that of seven sons. And not only that, but Ruth is also a great example because she is a widow herself, but the whole story is that of her remarrying. And of course she meets Boaz and remarries Boaz. And if you've enjoyed at first press the hundred plus sermons we've had on King David, just know you don't get those sermons without Ruth and Boaz because she eventually becomes the great grandmother of King David. So how do we come alongside our own family? How do we come alongside our own family? The first thing I wanted to communicate to us is for each of us, it's going to look very different. It could look different on the city you live in, the size of your family. Even think about that, the dynamics of someone who cares for their parents as an only child versus a child of six. It's gonna look very different for each believer as we come alongside our own family. But everyone, which verse eight, if anyone, everyone should be considering tonight How can I leave here determined to care with gospel excellency for my parents and grandparents? What widowed relatives do I have in my life that God might be calling me to come alongside them, to think for them, and to continue loving them well? I think it's also appropriate to mention that we should not only leave here determined to care for older relatives, but really any relatives in our household with special needs of dependency. God is calling us first and foremost to care for them before assistance that is um, directly from the church apart from the family. So this leads us to our last point, just to recap. Paul is calling Timothy and the church of Ephesus and even us today to cultivate our spiritual family in all purity to come alongside our own family, and then and only then do we live out point three, caring for needs as a church. Now, mercy from the church is not limited to widows, but as mentioned earlier, they're prioritized. And I believe that verse 16 is a great bookend summary statement from Paul on what the church is to do. Says in verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Here's the point of emphasis. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Paul, in summary, is saying the church must distinguish the difference between burdens meant for believers in their own family versus those meant for the family of believers. I'm going to say that again. It is up to the church. The sober-minded, self-controlled officers, women shepherds, 
and even all the household of God to distinguish the difference between burdens meant for believers in their own family versus those meant for the family of believers. And I believe it is verse five, verse five, that gives us the three most important clue words on how to make that decision. Paul says in verse five, they are left all alone. They are left all alone. If you notice in verse three, verse five, and verse 16, you'll see a common adjective, truly. The question is for those who are truly widows. He's not trying to be insulting. Even other translations to me feel more and more, more that direction of sternness where it's translating real widows. But Paul is saying it is up to the church to discern who are the widows that must be prioritized by the church in need. And verse five tells us the true widow is one who is all alone, left all alone. It's those who are alone and helpless. And when they are identified, what are we to do as a church? We live out verse three. We simply honor them. When you honor something, it's held up high. It's not hidden. It's not forgotten. It's not neglected. It's not dismissed. Paul is calling Timothy and the church to honor those who are truly widows, to care for them. And verse nine through 10, Paul writes to do so all the more because of their age, their conduct, their reputation, the reputation of and devotion to care and good works. So what does that look like for us to find people who are friendless, helpless, dependent, and left all alone? First, I believe that is for our church to be looking for those needs. And I would encourage you to begin in your parishes and your super parishes to look for those needs where God has geographically placed you, that you can be a light for the gospel. Secondly, the next thing I would encourage you to do as you are noticing more and more people around you who are all alone or who are helpless or who are in times of need is to pray for them. Praying for others is always the best things we can do. It is taking real needs to the one who hears and who is called himself the protector of widows. Some more practical suggestions for us on how First Pres can care as a church for those around us. It could be transportation or meals for those in your parishes who are overwhelmed or in a difficult season or situation. Maybe it is financial needs and though we have church elders and deacons and even women shepherds who are doing an amazing job caring, and even though the diaconate is already on top of it and uh, leveraging our giving and finances for the good of others, it always only helps more for when we notice those who are in financial need to bring those needs to the diaconate and making them aware. And then the last thing that I would mention which is a need of every church, is defeating loneliness. Think about it. Paul says one of their greatest needs that makes them one in need of the church is that they are all alone. 
Visitation, therefore, is a way to care for those of all ages in your spiritual family. We don't need to uh, underestimate the ministry of presence. And if God is calling First Pres to be a church that commends the greatness of God in Jesus Christ to all peoples and all generations, then we must ask God through the gospel to make us a church who's seeking to care for all peoples and all generations, especially those who are helpless. Author J.R. Tolkien writes about one who is helpless. Many of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings series and in the final novel, The Return of the King, there's one who is helpless. His name is Mr. Frodo Baggins and he finds himself on a mountain, Mount Mordor. He's seeking to destroy this ring of power. It's this ring that is really the whole, the whole book is about this ring that must be destroyed in the volcanic fire of Mount Mordor. He's reached the end of his journey. He's so close to destroying it, but he's burdened. He's helpless. He feels all alone. The ring is tormenting him and no one knows what he's been through. No one knows what he's going through in that moment. He feels surrounded by darkness. And so he stops and he gives up on the mountainside, but he's not alone. He's comforted by his friend, Samwise Gamgee. And Sam, lifting Frodo to his shoulders to complete the mission, says this iconic line, Come, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. First Pres, Jesus wants to take care of his people. Let's be a church who is so moved by the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can't help but carry the community around us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would make us a people who know your unconditional love and who long to carry the burdens of those around us from those within our family to those in the family of believers. Lord, make us a people who long to be to others as you have been to us, to be a household of all purity, to be a people who bring you much glory in the way we take privilege in caring for our family, who live out our faith and who look for the needs of those around us. I pray for everyone who is here tonight. Would you make us a people who seek to care and trust your gospel to change our community? We love you and pray for all of this in Christ's name. Amen.